In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Back when I was a young woman, a young working stiff, and those occasional situations would come up in the office where you had tricky religious discussions, I had this catchphrase that I often used, an all-encompassing phrase that explained what the Abrahamic faith in general and Christianity in particular believed. There is one God, and you ain't him. Good line, right? It at least gets a knowing smirk, if not a guffaw. And it seemed to get me out of the tricky situations. Atrocious grammar aside, it worked well for my discussions. But I would confess to you, brothers and sisters, that I have only recently begun to understand the magnitude of what I believed for years was a cute joke. Especially that part about, and you ain't him. More importantly, encompassed in that cute catchphrase is a deeper idea, and one that's present to us in all of our scripture readings today, that he is in charge and we are not. I'll further put it forward that pretty much all of our problems since, oh, about the third chapter of Genesis come down to not fully understanding that it's not a joke. In fact, this concept of God's truly being above all things is one of the most startling and radical ideas that we can possibly embrace. We find this radical notion titling our passage from wisdom. Wisdom, better known as the wisdom of Solomon now, is not in Anglican reading, technically canonical. It's part of the Apocrypha, also known as the Deuterocanon. That's those great intertestament books, which the 39 articles tells us the church doth read for example of life and instruction of manners, but yet doth it not apply them to establish any doctrine. Well, rest assured, dear brothers and sisters, we don't need to establish any doctrine here. The doctrine this is encompassing is quite well established. Because when you look at this passage, the whole title of the pericope of this passage of scripture is God is sovereign. God is king. You can see how that plays out throughout the passage. Verse 13, for neither is there any God besides you who cares is, whose care is for us all. Verse 16, for your sovereignty over all causes you to spare all. Verse 19, you are sovereign in strength. You have power to act whenever you choose. This is not at all controversial in doctrine. But I am going to say it's pretty radical. Because if we take this passage from wisdom seriously, it's saying that Jesus is king and we must bow before him. Yeah, 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 Douglas, we know that. We've heard that since our Sunday school days. What's your point? Well, my point, brothers and sisters, is this. We're really not very good at it. Because if we take it seriously, we really think it through and we live it out, we would look like a different people. How do we know? Because 
the rest of the scripture here gives us a glimpse into what it would look like if we were really living out the meaning of bowing down before King Jesus. It is a truly, truly radical idea. Let's take a little bit deeper look at that passage from wisdom. The wisdom of Solomon, of course, is not Solomon. We're not sure who it is because that, of course, is what the, the word apocrypha means. It means hidden. The source of these books are actually hidden from the church. But what we do know about wisdom is that it was written in the latter half of the first century BC, probably about 10 to 50 years before the coming of our Lord. The writer is Jewish, the audience of the Jews of Alexandria. This is a time when the Romans are in charge. It's a time of great upheaval. People are not in a comfortable place. Perhaps it sounds like a time that you might know. And yet the writer of wisdom is saying to this congregation, calm down. God is in charge. He is sovereign over all. He judges righteously. And he rules over you in great mercy. Now, none of this, to me, anyway, sounds terribly startling if you know anything from the Old Testament prior to this. But living it out, that's what's kind of radical. Looking at the psalm, for example, Psalm 86. In the Orthodox tradition, our brothers and sisters of the East actually have this as part of their daily readings. So when they do their version of daily prayer in the ninth hour, this psalm is part of it. And I might think that that's because it's really quite radical thanksgiving and glorification. You might not pick up on that right away. It doesn't have the, the great opening that something like the Venite does. It actually starts in lament. So you kind of miss the fact that there's some really strong glorification going on. Take a look at verses 8 through 12. Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any deeds like yours. All nations that you have made shall come and worship you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. Indeed, you are God alone. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. O knit my heart to you, that I may fear your name. I will thank you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and praise your name forevermore. Brothers and sisters, that's some radical thanking and praising right there. And I'll bet many of us didn't even notice it in our typical recitation of the Psalms. But that's what it takes to be a people of God Almighty himself in the midst of troubled times. That's how we get closer to God and come under his great protection and mercy. Radical thanksgiving. And that amazing protection and mercy should make us a people of a truly radical hope. That's what Paul is saying here to the church at Rome. 
You've probably noticed if you've been paying attention that we are actually walking through Romans this summer. In fact, I know a couple of ACNA rectors who are doing their whole sermon series this summer on Romans. Bless you, Jim. It's a great book, and it's an important one. Scottish theologian Dr. William Barclay calls it, of all Paul's letters, that which comes nearest to being a theological treatise. Paul's not dealing here with any of the petty or even the not-so-petty problems of the churches that he's often dealing with in his other letters. He's laying out a rather in-depth system of belief. And in this first section of the letter to Rome, he's laying out what it means to be a holy and righteous people in relationship with their God. That's what he's been doing over the whole first eight chapters. And at the end of this particular argument, he's showing us what that looks like. It looks like a people living in absolutely radical hope, a glorious hope, in the midst of sufferings of all things. Doesn't seem a very logical stance to take, but there it is, large as life and twice as natural. That's what it looks like to be a people who are so close to their God that they dare to be this radical. Because Paul says that God's glory, remember the glory we just were looking at in the Psalms? God's glory now that it's been revealed through Christ is so incredible that the whole of creation waits with eager longing. Verse 19, eager longing. Barclay translates that as eager expectation. The Orthodox Bible translates it as earnest expectation. But the Greek word is apokaradokia. My apologies to our Greek mistress if I'm mispronouncing that. Apokaradokia has within it this great sense of a man searching the horizon for daybreak. The daybreak of glory. Vivid expectation in the midst of sufferings. That's what truly trusting the Lord looks like. That's what real hope looks like. What an utterly radical idea. But perhaps even that is not as radical as our reading this morning from the Gospel of our Lord according to St. Matthew. The wheat and the tares, they translate it weeds. I don't know, I like tares better, probably because I grew up with that. Feels harsher somehow. But whether you translate it tares or weeds, it's the ultimate good guys and bad guys story, right? The wheat and the tares. Do you know which one you are? Sure? So I'll tell you what, for my part, I don't know about me. But we forget, we get so bogged down in this story about who are the good guys and who are the bad guys that we forget that it's not about that. It's about who is the sower. Remember back to wisdom? God is sovereign. God is the ultimate judge. God is ultimately to be praised and thanked, which we saw in the psalm. God is the ultimate hope, which we saw in Romans. Here's one more radical bit for you. God is the most loving and the most merciful. 
So you can't tell the difference between weeds and wheat in their early days. Not even the experts who know their crops well always get it right. And some people think they're experts and they really aren't. Easy to make poor judgments when you're not the one who's in charge. Really easy to get it wrong. Jesus doesn't want to lose any wheat. Yesterday, the church celebrated the feast of St. Mary Magdalene. I love St. Mary. She's a woman who both, you know, got to, got to witness to the apostles and she got to witness to the emperor. That's a pretty cool chick. But originally, St. Luke describes her as one from whom Christ cast out seven demons. Other traditions of the church have her in all kinds of unsavory professions before meeting our Lord. It'd be pretty easy to cast her as one of the tares. And yet our Lord called her to be the apostle to the apostles. They hidden in the secret room. She coming forth with the good news. I have seen the Lord, says John 20, 18. Think of some of the other New Testament characters. St. Peter denied our Lord three times. Lord made him the rock of the church. St. Paul persecuted the entire church. The Lord called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Even the thief on the cross, and you're being crucified for your sins, it's pretty easy to say, mm, weed right there. No. He recognized our Lord's sovereignty, and our Lord said, today you will be with me in paradise. Brothers and sisters, that's radical love. That's radical mercy. That's what we are called to emulate. Because Christ took each of these people, loved them, redeemed them, and made them whole, and put them to work in the kingdom. And he will do that until he's ready at the end of the age to finish, fully finish this new creation, as we sang about in that opening hymn. Radically loving us. Radically calling us to love like that. That's a radical letting go of our own pride, our own judgment, our own believed expertise bowing down before King Jesus and knowing that he is fully in charge and that we are simply called to love like he loves us. Friends in Christ, if we wish to walk with our Lord, we've been shown the way. We've got to get radical. We cannot be stuck, saved, sanctified, and stuck in our seats, as my brother Jay Want used to say back in Doha. We have to truly live this out. We have to live out radical thanksgiving, radical hope, radical love, radical mercy. But it all starts with radically submitting our own wills to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, are we ready to get that radical? And now to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, be all honor and glory and dominion as is most justly ascribed.